and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. For today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with Richard Roper, author of the heart-rending yet hilarious novel, Something to Live For, a novel he was inspired to write after reading an article about people whose job it is to follow up after people die alone. When he's not writing his own novels, Richard is a non-fiction editor at Headline, where he works with authors such as James Acaster, Joel Domit, and Frank Turner. Today we discuss how on earth you write something life-affirming, the art of receiving and applying feedback, and how writing chronologically helped Richard to remain motivated. Andrew looked at the coffin and tried to remember who was inside it. It was a man, he was sure of that, but horrifyingly the name escaped him. He thought he'd narrowed it down to either John or James, but Jake had just made a late bid for consideration. It was inevitable, he supposed, that this had happened. He'd been to so many of these funerals, it was bound to at some point, but that didn't stop him feeling an angry stab of self-loathing. If he could just remember the name before the vicar said it, then that would be something. There was no order of service, but maybe he could check his work phone. Would that be cheating? Probably. Besides, it would have been a tricky enough manoeuvre to get away with in a church full of mourners, but nearly impossible when the only other person there apart from him was the vicar. Ordinarily, the funeral director would have been there too, but he had called off sick. Unnervingly, the vicar, who was only a few feet away from Andrew, had barely broken eye contact since he'd started the service. Andrew hadn't dealt with him before. He was boyish and spoke with a tremor that was amplified unforgivingly by the echoey church. Andrew couldn't tell if this was down to nerves. He tried a reassuring smile, but it didn't seem to help. Would a thumbs up be inappropriate? He decided against it. He looked over at the coffin again. Maybe he was a Jake. Though the man had been 78 when he died, and he didn't really get many septuagenarian Jakes, at least not yet. Jesus, concentrate, he admonished himself. The whole point of him being there was to bear respectful witness to the poor soul departing on their final journey, to provide some company in lieu of any family or friends. Dignity, that was his watchword. Unfortunately, dignity was something that had been in short supply for John, or James, or Jake. According to the coroner's report, he had died on the toilet while reading a book about buzzards. To add insult to injury, Andrew later discovered firsthand that it wasn't even a very good book about buzzards. Admittedly, he was no expert, but he wasn't sure the author, who even from the few passages Andrew had read came across as remarkably grumpy, should have dedicated a whole page to bad-mouthing kestrels. The deceased had folded the corner of this particular page down as a crude placeholder, so perhaps he'd been in an agreement. As Andrew had peeled off his latex gloves, he'd made a mental note to insult a kestrel, or indeed any member of the Falcon family, the next time he saw one, as a tribute of sorts. Other than a few more bird books, the house was devoid of anything that gave clues to the man's personality. There were no records or films to be found, nor pictures on the walls or photographs on the windowsills. The only idiosyncrasy was the bafflingly large number of fruit and fibre boxes on the kitchen cupboards. So aside from being a keen ornithologist with a top-notch digestive system, it was impossible to guess what sort of person John, or James, or Jake had been. Hi Richard. Hi. So lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so how about we kick things off with you telling us a little about your debut novel, Something to Live For? Uh, yes, so yes, my debut novel, um, uh, which tells the story of Andrew, uh, who is tasked by the council where he works to deal with a situation where someone has died alone. So that means he has to go through their personal effects, see if they've got an ex of kin, 
and uh, even attend their funerals if it looks like no one's going to be there. Um, and as far as his colleagues are concerned, he's got this really great family life outside of this with a wife and kids. Um, but that's actually not strictly the case. And something that he told as a little bit of a white lie to help him fit in and kind of stave off his loneliness has now been something that he entirely relies on, this sort of fictional world that he's created. But then one day, uh, Peggy, a new starter, joins at work and they start to form something of a bond. And Andrew is left uh, with this choice about whether to carry on sort of living this lie which is let him have a kind of comfortable world or whether he's going to risk um, telling the truth and potentially losing everything and giving himself a sort of second chance at life. Oh what well, um, you can tell you've described that before. Well that was I feel like I've got about 25 different ways of pitching it and I'm still trying to settle on the right one but that's uh, that's about right I think. It's, like, it's such a wonderful book I really really enjoyed oh, thank it you. as I said and, and like the um just the kind of like his job mm. is already instantly interesting and and you know and the whole kind of scenario his predicament is such an interesting concept can you talk a little about how that kind of like how the idea how, what kind of you know when that happened yes <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things which you sort of dream about as a writer which is I was just sort of um, on my lunch break at work and I was mindlessly sort of scrolling through all my kind of different you know websites that I go on and I just found just came across this article which was called something like what happens when we die alone and it was following the people that I think they're in Liverpool, these council workers who do the same job that Andrew does um, in the book in real life. And it was just such a sort of, I mean, it was something I'd never really considered was a, was a job really, I suppose it's because it's something we don't really like sort of thinking about or kind of imagining ourselves, you know, ending up in that very, very kind of sad situation. And I was just sort of struck by how sort of stoic and kind these sort of people seem that, you know, such a sort of grim kind of job in reality to be doing that. But also the fact that, I read, you know, after that, I went on and read a few more articles about the people that, that sort of do that job. And they all seemed to, even though it wasn't necessarily part of the job itself, they would attend the funerals if it looked like people, you know, if there was no next of kin and there were no sort of friends or co-workers who were going to turn up. And they would just sort of go just to make sure that someone was there as this sort of incredible act of sort of, you know, kindness to sort of allow some dignity. So it was just that immediately sort of struck me as as just a kind of, you know, an incredible thing, and that that was you know the sort of basis of the of the book, I suppose. And then, I mean, I love the idea that you know that if you're looking if you're looking around at the world, there's inspiration everywhere. Mm-hmm. But um, then, so then from that, were you then sparked to think, well, what kind of person would do that job, and what might their story be? Yes, exactly that. I think it's sort of you know I thought you know I sort of I suppose there was a it was a bit of an amalgamation of the different people I saw being interviewed talking about uh, sort of the job, and that's where sort of. Andrew came from so immediately I you know I sort of knew that his 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 personality was going to be such that he was going to be sort of you know kind and you know sort of dignified but then I didn't really know what kind of his story was and then I sort of started to think about well what if it's you know he's sort of his day job is is dealing with the situation where people are you know dying without kind of next to kin around them and what if it turned out that he was actually um kind of heading that way himself and it was just you know a kind of nice uh, parallel and then it was also I was sort of as I started to kind of plan the book out and think more about it I was sort of um, you know I kind of realized that what Andrew was going through really was that he was lonely mm-hmm. and that is you know probably it was sort of almost I think subconscious at the time but that was something that you know I had sort of dealt with loneliness myself particularly when sort of moving to London and that sort of, you know, because I think, you know, we, I think there's a certain type of image you have when you move to London 
you know, sort of in your 20s of it being this kind of, you're going to meet a thousand people and it's going to be this sort of, this huge kind of adventure. And, and obviously there have been elements of that, but there were certainly times where that wasn't quite the case. And that I would, you know, I realised in retrospect that I would do things where I would sort of um, tell little, you know, not white lies, but I would sort of, you know, there was a particular instance where um, a colleague just sort of asked me casually what I'd done at the weekend. And I rather than just sort of saying, oh, I didn't see anyone, I sort of, or, you know, just or saying something like I had a quiet one. I just sort of said something like, oh, yeah, I saw some friends. And then they start asking me follow, follow-up questions. And after about five minutes, I'd sort of invented this little mad yeah. story. And it was like I'd sort of, I'd done something terrible and I was kind of creating an alibi or something. It was really weird. But I, and I just sort of thought, well, this is, you know, clearly what he's, you know, what Andrew was sort of going through as well. And the sort of, the lie that he tells about having a family is a sort of exaggeration of, I suppose, you know, um, that thing which I think people do when they're lonely, which is occasionally to sort of massage the truth a little bit. Mm, absolutely. And I was going to say, you know, loneliness is a huge theme for Andrew, but also um, in terms of a sense of emotional loneliness, like mm-hmm. Cam and Peggy, both of them are going through their own kind of experiences of yeah. being isolated from the people that they love and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, just can you talk a little bit about, besides what you just said, mm-hmm. about what <laughs> compelled you to write about loneliness and, and also your exploration of it within the novel? Yes, well, I think I sort of, once I kind of had the, the bare bones of the story and that I sort of knew that it was going to follow um, Andrew on his journey of not only of investigating these, you know, doing his day job and the property searches and sort of, um, you know, think that side of it was, you know, all the stuff I'd read about these statistics about not only um, about um, the rise of these paupers' funerals, as they're called, which mm. is, you know, people... Um, sort of dying dying alone with no one there and having to you know pay for their own funerals that sort of the statistics there are really sort of quite stark and 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 depressing really that those they're kind of on the rise and then I suppose it was just sort of coupling that with with my experience of loneliness possibly and you know again there are a lot of statistics there particularly with um, I think there's a lot more conversations happening about the fact that loneliness isn't something that's sort of exclusively about kind of you know elderly people which obviously it's still a massive problem but I think there are lots more kind of young people talking about it and you know on the face of it you know Andrew is just sort of a sort of a normal guy but he's just he's just told this line he's kind of stuck with it and I was just really fascinated about the idea of following it through when someone you know this kind of exaggerated thing of the little white lies we all tell I mean you know my Instagram feed is like everyone's if you look at it compared to you know you get stuck in that thing where you think oh I must have people think I'm having more <laughs> fun course, than, you, than you probably yeah. are and so really it was a sort of as I kind of got more kind of into the you know plotting out the book and, and working out what I want it to be it was those those two different things sort of coming together and I suppose um just seeing where I got to kind of exploring loneliness and and yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think I, in my head now, I'm not sure whether I had that as so much of a plan as I'm making out now, yeah, yeah. but I think by the end of it, I realised that's exactly what it was about. And it's weird, it's only now when I'm sort of talking about it and being interviewed that I was like, oh yeah, of course that's what it's about. So it's this weird sort of subconscious thing that yeah, happens yeah. when writing, I think. Well, that's quite good though, isn't it? Because you know, a lot of people, like it's, it's, I often ask authors whether they set out to write about something that is a theme of their novel and mm-hmm. a lot of their, like, you know, a lot of them haven't. And it seems like, if you if you think right, I want to write a novel about loneliness and all this kind of stuff, you just tie yourself up in knots. Whereas Completely. if you see what happens and see what emerges, then there's going to be themes there that you didn't know. Like. Yes, I think there's a, a certain kind of. Uh, it's not particularly authentic. I think if you sort of, you know, any time where I've thought, oh yeah, I'm going to write about 
you know this or then then this theme could come out it never works because it's sort of you it just you can it's just inauthentic and a bit contrived whereas i think it's only sort of when you finish something and you look back at it and you think oh of course this all ties together and maybe i'll bring more of that element and out particularly working with an editor that's you know that you know that i had a really good experience with my editors where they would they were brilliant at sort of you know teasing out kind of things and go well you know you mentioned earlier about um, Peggy and Cameron, two of the other um, characters, and the, sort of their experiences, and that was very much my editor sort of saying, "No, we need to know a little bit more about them." And of course, it's sort of what was great about that was that I could then write about, you know, uh, Cameron is the, is the sort of boss uh, figure in the novel, and he's sort of he's he, on the face of it, he's you know incredibly sort of enthusiastic and positive, but when you get little glimpses into his family life, you can tell that he again is sort of desperately sort of portraying this life that isn't really kind of true so that was you know a kind of brilliant job on my editor's part to make me sort of tease out these other strands yeah and I mean it's a good good say into this um you're, so you're a non-fiction editor yeah yeah and so how did you find the experience of being of working with an editor on your writing like? <laughs> um I, to be completely honest with you I really this is no as I say my editors were completely brilliant but I found it much harder than I was expecting and really? I learned quite a lot about being an editor from it and that I realized that any sort of feedback you get that's in any way critical is horrible mm. because it feels like you know it's sort of, it basically feels like someone's going to go, you've done this wrong. No matter how, you know, uh, kindly it's put, I, you know, every time I've received editorial feedback, the first hour is me kind of going, oh God, it's the, I'm the worst. <laughs> I don't know why they bought this. It's all, I'm a, it's a sham of a book. And then I have a sort of day to think about it and I kind of calm down and I go, okay, yeah, that actually makes a huge amount of sense. But it certainly made me be, I think, a lot kinder when it comes to really? giving feedback and, you know, sort of, a sentence right you know when I've given an editorial note where it might seem quite blunt I've, I've now you know when I've I, I my authors are probably really confused as to suddenly why I've changed to become this incredibly sort of benevolent figure I'm going if you could just think about changing this one thing it would make it even better but I think it's really important that that I really learned a lesson in sort of um this sort of art of feedback I yeah think. that's um, interesting yeah, it's it was. Now you're all about the smiley faces and the gold stars. So many smiley faces, gold stars, <laughs> so much kind of positive stuff. But yeah, it's. I mean, the thing. It's. Can I swear on this? Of What's course. The okay. Yeah. Great. It's not particularly. But the the sort of the kind of cliche of the the shit sandwich with the editorial letter, where obviously you start with this sort of you know you're a genius, you know you're the new Donatar. It's going to be that this is the greatest thing you've ever been written, and then it's really the sort of the meat of it, which is the this needs to change, this needs to change, this needs to change, and then the ending. But just to reiterate, you are the king of the world. <laughs> and I sort of, um, and it made me kind of think that that's, it's, there's probably a more artful way of doing that. And just sort of, it's, I can really see through it when I get those kind of notes now. So I think I've tried to sort of mix up the way I kind of give my feedback. Yeah, okay, interesting, interesting. How do you think that, um, how do you think that having your kind of editorial experience helped you in the actual writing of the book well I think to be honest with you if I didn't if I hadn't sort of so I've been working in publishing for nine years now sort of I moved to London to get a job uh, at Penguin um, and I'd I'd love to say I was one of those writers that has always dreamt of writing novels and had been writing sort of you know books since I was sort of seven or whatever but I kind of truthfully haven't I've always you know written little bits and pieces but no, with no real dreams of becoming a, an author because I just didn't really understand I didn't really think to myself that that was a viable thing to do I just thought that was what you know authors were sort of born in some sort of you know factory or something <laughs> and they all came out and did it 
but working in in publishing i think particularly in the last sort of five or six years where i moved to headline and sit you know being more involved as an editor on the non-fiction side but our editorial teams are mixed when it comes to say editorial meetings and it's all a big sort of a free-for-all where people are pitching that you know submissions that they've had in and talking about that and you know, I basically, you know, I sit next to or just behind, you know, Maggie O'Farrell's editor, for instance. Oh. So I kind of, I get to see her pitching books and talking about the kind of um, mechanics of, you know, editing and writing. And I think it was only one, once I've been so involved with that, that I started to sort of think, oh, maybe I could, maybe there's something in this for me. And, and I sort of, it's been massively, massively helpful in, in sort of, you know, I'd be in an editorial meeting and you hear an editor pitch a book where they'd sort of say, it's brilliantly written, you know, the author's fantastically talented, um, it's a great, you know, fantastic uh, pitch, we love the hook of it, but we just can't publish it because we've got a similar book next year. So you'd hear stuff like that and you yeah. sort of think, oh my, like it's, so it was learning lessons like that where you sort of think, obviously you can't really do much about that, but mm. but just sort of seeing the way it works and it just, you know, I've just gained a real kind of understanding of how, obviously, how publishing works, but also that kind of editorial process and just sort of seeing, the, you know, the passion that these editors, but, you know, on the non-fiction side as well, the way they talk about books and just what a kind of, you know, the, the process of publishing and when it goes well, how kind of great it could be. And I just, it made me want to be kind of on the other side of that. Practically, in terms of kind of helping me get published, it probably if anything had a it wasn't advantageous which I know sounds like a like a lie but it's but I because this isn't I'd written two books before this one of which went out on submission and didn't get picked up but even sending it out to agents was this really weird thing of you know I picked three agents that I sort of knew but wasn't particularly you know I wasn't mates with or anything and you know you sort of think well because I work in publishing I'm probably going to get a bit of an in here and I immediately out of the three I sent it to, the first person replied instantly with a huge list of why they would ne- not why they would never take me on, but why they couldn't. The book didn't. They didn't think the the sample material worked at all, and they just you know it was quite you know brutal. And one of them I never heard, never acknowledged it. Wow. And then some, and then the other person did take me on, and then I I kind of it's a long story, but I sort of switched agents after you know after that book didn't kind of work. Um, but it was a, a quite a, you know, I possibly naively did sort of think, well, I'll probably get a, you know, this is going to help me working in publishing, yeah, but it yeah. really didn't. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose like to, to an outsider, you would think, you'd assume that it would be like super easy to, because you'd know all the right people. And yeah. Like, yeah. Turns out not. No, I think, which, but which is, you know, I've learned a huge amount. I mean, I'm very, very glad that that first book didn't get picked up. And then I wrote and one immediately after that, which I got to the end of it. And I just thought, I just don't, I can't imagine this being the one either and I think if I'd not had those two experiences then I don't think the one that has something to live for I don't think that would have I would never have got there I don't think if I'd had those not had those first two experiences wow that's amazing that you completed two like actually completed them yeah well the first one was a proper you know I sort of it took about I think probably about three years where I didn't really think to myself right here is a novel I'm going to write I just sort of started with an image and then it kind of got longer and longer and then it was you know suddenly I kind of had 70,000 words or something and I I kind of polished it up and stuff but I didn't it wasn't I didn't really set out to write to sort of go right I'm going to write a novel now and it's I'm going to get published mm-hmm. it was just something I you kept coming back to and I wouldn't you know I didn't really have a routine or anything it would just be you know I might not write something for three weeks and then suddenly I'd kind of write a bit more and it's sort of the one of the sort of lessons that I'd 
I, I spent an awful amount of time uh, when I was writing these books reading articles about how to get published and what you should do and all these sorts yeah. of things. I, mostly as procrastination, obviously. But the one thing I'd read, which was a really good bit of advice, was you know if you've got something out on submission, you know whatever it is, start writing something else. Just throw yourself into a new project because you will go insane. And I did go insane for the you know when a your book's out on submission, it's just the absolute worst thing in the world. Yeah. It's kind of I don't think why have I done this because it's you're just sitting there refreshing your email. I had this insane thing where I set up a filter so that. Um, I got on. A, I only got on an email alert if it was from my agent. So that I thought. So I spent. Cause I was spending so much time just refreshing my inbox. Yeah, that's not healthy. It's just mad. <laughs> it's not healthy, and it was just. Yeah, it was kind of bonkers, really. But I'm very, very glad that I threw myself into um, sort of writing a new book. Even though ultimately, when I got to the end of it, I just thought, you know, I'm glad I've written this, but I don't. I just couldn't visualize it being kind of the one that was going to, you know, kind of get published. So that was kind of shelved and then I hadn't I wasn't really sure whether I was whether I was going to keep going and then it was just reading that article and having that idea sort of sparked the the kind of oh no this is maybe this is the one and also what really helped was that I'd actually bothered to do a bit of reading about um sort of structure and how to plot a novel and stuff in the interim yeah so I read um that book Into the Woods by John York yeah nice which I feel like is now like sort of the bible of if you know that would be my one bit of advice in terms of anyone sort of looking for a book to read about it's quite heavy though isn't it it's quite heavy but it's it, it just really sort of helped me understand the way because it's obviously about the way stories are told and the and how stories work and why stories work mm. that even just sort of having that sort of knowledge of here's where you know his the characters need to go on journeys and there needs to be tension and there needs to be goals and all this sort of stuff and and you know looking into kind of how, whether it should be three acts and five acts mm. all this sort of stuff I'd slightly dismissed before I think in a kind of oh that's too much you know you're trying to kind of um, stick to a formula but just having that kind of basic knowledge of of structuring and plotting and helped me no end. So when I had this, I, it was perfect timing because I just got to the point where I was, you know, sort of I'd read that book and I thought, well, that's interesting. I just need an idea now to kind of, you know, to sort of then tr- apply this kind of this learning to. And then it just so happened that I had I the idea, idea for the new book. And then so I was able to almost kind of go, oh, my God, right. So I know what my opening image is now. I know what my closing image is. You know, I know the arc he needs to go on. Oh, of course, there needs to be some. T- he needs to have a goal. What is it? And having that then really helps. And I don't think I would have in it. I know there's no way I would have written this book. Would have sort of turned out the way it has. And I've been lucky enough to get published if I'd not read books like that. Yeah. to help me. That is interesting. I've um, I recently. I, well, I've kind of. I'm writing. I wrote nonfiction to yeah, start yeah. Off with, and now I'm writing a novel. Oh, and right, it great. Is proving quite difficult. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and um, and I read Save the Cat. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah that was. Absolutely, my other sort of like it's the Bible. I think that that and the John York, I think, are just the best because I think it's. To no, say, I've been avoiding Into the Woods so long. I sort of started it, and then I was like, "Oh God!" But recently, I've been thinking I need to find a book that helps me with this. And you've just—it's like you've. Yeah, oh you've great! Me, I yeah. think I would genuinely recommend it. I know it, I remember starting reading it, and I was sort of thinking, "Oh God, this is there's so many examples in here. It's gonna—you it, it, feel like you're gonna get bogged down." But I would definitely persevere with that. I think it's sort of it's particularly as well just because it is a kind of entertaining read and it just sort of just the way it explains what I think was even more helpful is when it's there are examples and there are things that 
TV shows that didn't work when he was working on them and then how they fixed it. And it seemed to be all about this thing of, you know, a character has to have a goal. If they don't have a sort of tangible goal, then it won't work. They need something to to strive for. And, you know, things like that, which I would just never have even really considered. And then when he's, what's really great about it as well is that the examples that, I've read other books where the examples were, you know, it, all, it seems to be about sort of, you know, Ulysses and stuff, where his examples were things like, you know, Holby City mm. and kind of Cold Feet, which is so much more kind of, you know, accessible as a sort of, oh, of course, and then you can apply that to what, to what you, certainly for me. Yeah, anyway. and I suppose because those storylines are familiar to you, when you're reading the learning that he's giving you, yeah. you already know what that story made you feel and what bits they're talking about. And so it's exactly. kind of a bit more of an enjoyable learning Yes. Experience. Oh, completely, yeah, because yeah. you can apply it to think, oh, yeah, I can, I get the reference. So I know exactly what he's talking about. But but that and, and there's, yeah, Save the Cat, I think, is, again, that was, you know, I sort of used a sort of vague, you know, template of one of those sort of, you know, things, you know, thinking about inciting incidents and, you know, midpoints and all those sorts yeah. of things, you know, having that as a sort of, even if you don't, you know, stick to it or don't, you know, completely apply that formula, just having it as a, just laying out your, you know, looking at your kind of plot and thinking, well, how could this, if someone was to turn this into a film, mm. is there a kind of, you know, what would they, what would be the opening image or what would be the inciting incident and stuff like that just help me anyway, have it sit in my mind as, oh yeah, of course that, you know, I could see this being a, you know, 90 minute feature film. What it has meant is that it's absolutely ruined my enjoyment of any single film I watch now. Oh I'm my God, sad. I completely agree. It's the worst because you said, <laughs> I even think cause if you've got a kind of like a timer on, you know, if it's a, if, you know, or you pause something on Netflix and it's, you know, that it's 45 minutes into a 90 minute film, you sort of think, oh, that's the midpoint now. So, you know, yeah. it's going to be the, uh, the false victory or the false defeat. And it's just, it's, and you can see the things that, that completely are, you know, sticking to it. I watched this film the other day, which is a brilliant example of it. It was a Paul Rudd film. Uh, it's a really bad name, but it was oh, it's called the Fundamentals of Caring. It's with the dude from um, what's he in the? I know, I know the one you mean. It's got the it's got the waffles and the sausage. Yes, like yeah, it's got that the, the, the English, English kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's in? What the hell is he in? He's in something like. He's really good in the thing that he's in as well, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> what is it? It's not Sex Education or no, The End of the before, Fucking World. It was before that. It was like maybe a couple, maybe a year or two before that. God. How awful. <laughs> That's bad. This is where we need like an Adam Buxton's podcast where he has fact-checking Santa. He yeah. Kind of got you'll have to do yours. But, but watching that is a, is a you know, a brilliant... Because it, it works, I think, as a film. Like, it's a really oh, sweet, really kind of, it. like, funny, yeah. but dark and kind of... But it, if you sort of... You know, <coughs> watching it for a say, I kind of watched it twice. And watching it the second time around, I properly made... I kind of noted. And it just... Because I'm trying to write my second book now. And it was just a real sort of refresher of you know, not to follow exactly that kind of thing, but sort of think, oh yeah, you need to have these big moments and you need those kind of, yeah. those beats. And it just, it made me kind of, you know, anxious to get going again on the on the new book. That's good. And it, I suppose, you know, you can subvert the rules slightly, slightly but just mm. having that kind of, having, knowing that you've got those moments that are going to emotion, like appeal to the reader. Like, I mean, yeah. like I can... I didn't, not I wasn't reading your book thinking, well, he's read Save the Cat, <laughs> but at the same time, I felt those. I felt those moments. Yes. Like it was. It was. An, it was a really satisfying yeah. read where I felt all the emotions that you were definitely manipulating. Yeah, of course. Feel. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, you know, and, and so there's definitely something to be said for it. I reckon. Mm-hmm. And like, and also, you know, if you've never written fiction, yeah, you know, like it's it for me. I'm a planner. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, me I, too. I, I yeah. love having like boards yeah. and all these like, you know, obviously it's just Absolutely. pure procrastination. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, but, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it feels quite nice <laughs> to have it kind of mapped out and yes. to know what kind of needs to be written and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's it feels 
like you're you know you're you're writing towards something rather than just writing because I feel like I could keep writing nonsense forever oh yeah for sure yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's sort of even even on a sort of even if it's not those kind of the big you know whether it is the sort of the midpoint or the, the all those big bigger beats I think as a planner too the thing that really helps me or makes you know because obviously you have bad writing days and good writing days and the bad days are sort of you know when you think oh I've no idea what sort of is it is the thing I think going to happen next is that actually going to work and then it's such a slog but I think having any sort of a plan where you think I'm really really excited that in you know in sort of 30,000 words there's going to be that one scene which I can't wait to write or even if it's a little moment or having those kind of little ideas and then think right oh I can't wait to put that on my <laughs> my imaginary notice board or whatever having that as a sort of um as a thing to work towards mm. I think is one of the biggest sort of motivators for me as a as a writer because you sort of think even if I had a really kind of crap day of just sort of slogging something out I'm not really sure that scene's working and I have to completely change it the knowledge that yeah but you know once you kind of get through it you get to write that I never really sort of write scenes out of order but I sort of leave the ones I think I'm excited about are kind of good it's nice to have an incentive yeah 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 that's a nice way of thinking about it so you did write it as chron- like chronologically mm. yeah okay like I think I you know I sort of would have ideas for um I think well certainly for something for live for I had the the sort of the opening I knew exactly what was going to happen in the opening chapter and in the final chapter and I knew sort of little line you know sort of callbacks right to that first chapter and occasionally I would sort of I would go, oh, this is going to be, you know, a, you know, a little throwaway joke or a little bit of description, and I might sort of jot that down as a bullet point. But, but again, just as a little kind of incentive, I think. I mean, I would even if I, if I get to the end of a day and I sort of think, oh god, that was a good, I, not a particularly great day of writing, but I'm excited to, you know, I want to do the next thing. Even just leaving kind of a bullet point of the thing to start with the next day, just to sort of to kind of keep the wheels turning. I yeah, think yeah. is it's all about looking for the next thing to write I think or getting excited to write the next thing yeah, no matter how bad it's, like it's gone momen- it's momentum isn't it yeah well. for sure who yeah. was it there's someone um, I'm gonna I reckon maybe it was Ernest Hemingway but oh, nice. who knows <laughs> but um, he always said to stop writing before you were like worn out like just do like your time so yes or, or, uh, maybe it wasn't him but I think it was but, like where you know you stop when you're still kind of like energised yes so you, you start the next day raring to go completely yes I think it was him that we're going to find out this was like you know Jedward or something yeah. this, but I think it's like <laughs> I often quote Jedward it's a common mistake <laughs> but I think, I think that he yeah in terms of sort of having a writing sort of word count I think that he would I think it was him yeah he would even if, if he hit the word count even if he was still completely motoring and was halfway through a scene he would just stop dead because yeah. it would then the next day he knew he could, he could pick it up. And I still, I think it's quite, it's one of those sort of, it's almost like a cheat, but it really works. Because mm-hmm. I completely, I don't think I am, would be as disciplined as to kind of, you know, stop halfway through a sentence or something. But but in the knowledge that the next day when you open your laptop, you, it's not that thing of like, oh God, what, you know, where do I, where do I even start? You sort of go, it's, yeah, picking up that momentum and kind of, even if it's only sort of, you know, another 200 words and then you finish that scene, it's, it makes you think that you're making progress even when you're sort of not. Yeah, tricking your brain. Exactly Because like, sometimes when you start and you're like, oh, what am I going to do today? Yeah. But then you can spend an hour like, well, like faffing around, like looking at which bits kind of appeal to you and like, yes. I don't write in order. Right, so okay. That, that's, you know, but it is so much about finding out the ways that work for you, isn't it? Yes, exactly. You know? I'm, yeah, I think that's sort of, that's why I'm kind of glad that I had the experience of writing those two you know, books before I then sort of wrote the one that got published because I, you know, I 
I've had experience of just writing completely without planning, writing something where I had a bit more of an idea, but not really. I think with those two as well, I would occasionally kind of go back and, you know, um, polish up something I'd written, you know, the day before, before I moved on. And I, But then when I wrote the one that's become, you know, my debut, that's, you know, I kind of got to the point where I was like, no, I'm just going to write the, I plotted it all out completely. And then I wrote the first draft without ever going okay, back. Interesting. And I think that is the only way I mean, it meant that when I finished the first draft and then I, I did the thing which you're supposed to do, which is you sort of le- you let it incubate for months. Yeah, yeah, put it in the drawer. Put it in the drawer. <laughs> and uh, I came back to it and I was slightly naive and I was like, oh, this is probably going to be, you know, not the greatest thing ever. But I was quite confident that, you know, because I'd got a plan and I'd written to, you know, I'd done my research about structure and everything. And then I, when I read it, I was immediately sort of slightly gutted, like, oh god this is going to take a lot of work and that was I mean I wrote that first draft in three months impressive well that's that's what I thought and then it took me seven months to then (laughs) redraft it before it was it was about 11 drafts before I even let anyone read it but that was and it was full drafts like full rewrite like not complete full rewrites but that thing of you know starting out quite kind of big and kind of you know there were scenes that were cut or sort of um you know, completely expanded on or, or rewritten. And then obviously the more drafts you go, then, you know, by the end of it, it was almost kind of going right, you know, page and then paragraph and then sentence. And just, you know, I just, I remember getting to the point where, because obviously it was my, it was, you know, essentially the sort of the third book I'd written. I remember thinking, I'm not sure whether I can, if this gets sort of turned down, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm going to be able to get going again, unless I'm sort of completely, you know, I might give it five years or something but so I just remember thinking I'm not going to let anyone read this or show it to an agent or anything unless I'm basically as happy as I can be with every single part of it which is what everyone says you should be doing anyway which I think exactly yeah yeah, there's no point just sort of you know getting to the end of it and sort of thinking oh that'll probably do and in fact any bits where I sort of thought to myself you know there were still bits where when I looked at it afterwards I was like I'm not entirely sure that works but I just can't I just cannot think of a way to improve it and those were always the bits where my editors would go well this bit doesn't really work and so mm-hmm. I feel like that is a lesson that I've learned is for the the new one I'm trying to write where anything I sort of when I look at it and I'm going to think oh I'll probably you know you sort of fudge it it's like if you're thinking that then of course <laughs> you're yeah, editing that yeah. and the reader will as well so yes interesting I'm looking at Alex Michaelides' book at the moment oh yeah and have you like his process is bonkers oh what's his process because I love that book oh my god it's he's, incredible but what's his process he because um, he's got a screenwriting background so yeah. he, with, every, with every draft I, I think he said that he did about 50 drafts wow and with every draft he would print it out and then um, read it in full and write all his notes and then he would he would go back and do it all but he, I think he yeah I think he did oh my god. something like 50 and then he also um, would write a treatment, yes, like that you would make produce for a TV show, yeah. And he and for for the book, yes. So he, I think his was like meticulously planned. It really it really oh appealed to the planner part. Of oh me. yeah. Like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> but like you, I mean, you can tell in that like it's so fast paced. Yes. But to, and it's and you know like that kind of level of perfectionism is like. Yes, impressive. that is very impressive. I mean, yeah. that is fifty drafts. Is yeah, I thought I was mad writing. I think I got to eleven before I sent it out but 50 that's yeah that's some serious 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 attention to detail and it's paid off very well yeah it has it has and and for you as well 11 drafts is like you know that's decent how do you when you um, you know you say you sit near Maggie O'Farrell's Mm -hmm. um, editor were you like was there ever a moment when you were like oh I'm going to use this would you maybe look at it (laughs) I I probably thought well no is the honest answer 
Well, so in terms of showing people drafts, uh, the first I, I'm lucky enough that I've got friends who work in publishing, and but the first time I asked for any kind of feedback at all, it was really just to sort of check that I wasn't insane for thinking that I could write at all. So it was a kind of very much being in the pub and having a few drinks, and then sort of saying, "Listen, I've written this thing," and I really didn't tell anyone that I was trying to write anything. I didn't tell my like my family or my friends outside of publishing. I just wanted to. I think the more I know people have completely different sort of theories on this and I think it works for whatever motivates you but I remember thinking to myself that if you tell someone you know oh I'm writing this book or I'm doing this thing then your sort of the motivation partly becomes wanting to kind of impress people and show off to them and kind of keep saying oh yeah I'm writing this yeah I'm kind of you know I'm 40,000 words into this book and then hearing them kind of go oh that's so impressive that you've done this whereas if you're just doing it really for yourself then when you're sitting down to write it's because you know you're totally invested in it for the right reasons I think I think for some people you know having conversations and saying I'm trying to write this thing and you know please read this you know at this really early stage completely works for them but I'm just sort of going on what kind of helped me but I I did consider the idea of you know with this book showing you know people that I kind of work with who are these you know amazing fiction editors but I just partly it is a kind of you know professional thing of they're incredibly busy and also yeah. if, if they were to sort of read it and kind of go it doesn't really work or they didn't want to tell me that that's a kind of burden on them and I've got to sit you know we've got to work together so it was just been sort of yeah, too awkward. awkward so I kind of glad that I kind of kept it out of house yeah as it were. but then so then you showed it to your agent was the first person you showed it to yes so that was so I'd sort of I'd kind of i um I changed uh agents not for, with, with any sort of sense of bad will it was just a sense of you know i what I realised after the first book went out was that the agent that I had um, who had picked me up, they were had very very explicitly said that they were from a sort of an, uh, an events you know marketing background, and they could have they could see why they thought the book would work, but and they gave me some editorial feedback, but it wasn't particularly kind of detailed, and I think that and I kind of realised that I'm someone who needs to you know I wanted to work with an agent at that very initial stage who was going to be very involved in the sort of Sure. The writing process and my agent, uh, Laura Williams, who's at uh, Green and Heaton, who's fantastic. She, I had um, met with her um, uh, for you know on the work side of things because she um, did re- uh, um, does represent some nonfiction authors, and I just I was sort of talking to her about you know asking her how she likes to work with authors and what her kind of process is, and she was told was speaking about how incredibly involved she is in. Yeah. the editorial process and she she said to me you know and it's kind of proved to be true she said oh, you will not no one can send me you know any bit of writing without you know I feel compelled to kind of write notes on it and not sort of you know tearing it apart or anything but she you know she's a brilliant editor and we did it must have been about another four or five rewrites where she really pushed me to you know she told you know gave her feedback on things she didn't think quite worked and then you know it was a similar thing of quite a kind of wide-ranging edit of things and then by the end of it she said listen I think you just you know let's give this one more polish I think this chapter could be a bit tighter and I think this dialogue is a little bit sketchy you need to work on it and so that was you know such an amazing you know when that went out on submission I really did think well there's not a huge amount more we could have uh, done with this and um, and so yes I'm you know I will now like I showed her um, the sort of opening couple of thousand words I'd written for the new book because I was confident enough that she would just to get a kind of whether she thought it was sort of working or not. So 
that was a massive boost in having an agent who is a brilliant editor as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And also, what an enriching experience mm. you know, to be able to go through that and to be able to be discussing it, knowing it's kind of a safe space. Yes, but also oh, wanting to impress them. Yes. But also learning from them. They know what sells. So it's yeah. like, it's just that you've written two books on your own. You've written this third, then you're having some real help shaping. Like, it just yeah. feels like a, even though probably at the time, you're like, oh my God, I just want this to go out <laughs> to submission. But like, it is that kind of, you know, that it, it doesn't require that level of, education about that yeah. and because like, I always you know success doesn't happen just overnight like a lot of the authors that come to the riffraff they'll have written a couple of books yeah and so many of them have written it's like they're sort of the third one they've written the second one they've written and like yeah and they're always the authors that seem to be like having wonderful success which is like it's like they call it their education which oh completely yes that's know? exactly what it yeah. is yeah which yeah. is really cool um right I'm gonna ask you some questions about the book now okay <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew has um he suppressed a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. and um, and the reasons obviously become clear throughout the book. And I, yeah, I wonder if you could talk about your kind of exploration of suppressed trauma within the book and your approach to showing its effect on him, um, how it manifests, and also his journey to acknowledging what he needs to address. Yes, that's. I mean, one of the things that I sort of wrestled with when I wrote the book was that um, obviously Andrew has a lot going on where he's. Uh, he tells this lie about having a wife and kids and that you know is something that which he kind of wrestles with on a daily basis and it sort of started as something that um he just sort of kind of came out with it within this interview this job interview and it sort of it initially was a you know a crutch and he sort of didn't know how he was going to get out of it and then as sort of time went on he's you know learned to kind of rely on it and when I'd first to talk about it in quite a kind of like mechanical writing y way, is that a word? Writing no, yeah, yeah, yeah. writing we'll take it. Yeah, that's a good um, one. <laughs> I sort of initially that was sort of going to be it. This sort of him, without trying to give too much away, him sort of this lie was just something that kind of happened and then he lived with the consequences. And then I kind of at next draft stage, I kind of realized that it just felt more kind of compelling that actually. Not only was, you know, he was going to tell this lie, but there was, you know, there was going to be something in his past that was sort of, you know, precipitated him then telling this lie and that I was going to sort of drip that in Mm. sort of throughout the book. And I think there probably is a version of the book that exists without him having that kind of repressed trauma. And I, there are times when I sort of think about it that I do wonder whether if I have my time again, I might. I might have been too keen to put too much in there and have too many sort of things to make sure people are kind of, you know, I'm not losing people's attention. Because I yeah. sort of think, you know, as a as a debut writer, I'm sort of, I was possibly kind of quite panicked a lot of the time that, you know, I wanted to, you know, people not to get bored or there to be a no, you know, enough sort of mysteries in the book to, that, you know, to to kind of, to keep people kind of invested in it. And I think maybe, you know, for the books I write in the future, I might not necessarily um, go down that route, but it did allow me to sort of have, you know, this thing which I could keep sort of dripping in and, you you know, as a reader, you kind of hopefully wanting to kind of find out what this thing, which seems almost out of context kind of is. And then when, you know, there are sort of these big reveal moments, which were completely joyful to write and actually did, you know, I think probably just about kind of work. Um, But yeah, the sort of, the repressed trauma thing, I do wonder in retrospect whether actually I didn't need to have that. But yeah. there we go. 
Yeah, but then I mean, you're always going to wonder about certain things that you put in your book and whether yes. you shouldn't like. And you know, and I always, whenever I read things that are kind of really sparsely plotted, I'm mm. just like, oh man, that's so cool. Yes, you know. So you're always going to be thinking, you're, for you, sure. You know, you can't. Your book is wonderful. You shouldn't be. Oh, thanks. Thank you. There's no point. There's no point thinking about <laughs> no, that. No, this is true. Um, I'm interested in whether you. Um, when you were saying that you plotted it, whether you were plotting, as well as plotting the events, were you also plotting his emotional journey? Or was that kind of within the events? I think that it was, I certainly knew that, you know, where I wanted him to be at the start and where I wanted him to be at the end. And obviously that's in quite a sort of, um, uh, almost kind of a practical way of, you know, you know, that that journey obviously you know his, his circumstances are obviously going to change throughout the book as he goes on this journey and I suppose <clears throat> that I didn't necessarily plan that you know his emotional journey I didn't plan all those beats I think that kind of came in the writing where you sort of yeah. think you know at a certain point okay he needs to be more sort of um uh you know take charge now and of course because if the plot you know if a scene happens where you know a big shift is going to happen where you know he's gonna you know sort of tell the truth about something or you know finally stand up for himself then of course you know he then starts to have these emotional changes which affects kind of everything that he he does yeah no no I like the idea that like that it comes to the writing you know there's, there's only so much you can plot yes and so if you know that it's going to be a point where he does he he takes a definitive action mm-hmm. but that is you know, I suppose it's kind of you've got to allow some of it to be instinctive writing, haven't you? Completely, yes. Yeah, not not too much control. No, I think well, that's <laughs> kind of the good thing about having that. You know, you can plan as much as you want in terms of sort of you know, kind of beats or sort of big moments or kind of reveals or a kind of shift in dynamics. But yeah, you can't. I'd love to sort of you know think I had in my head. Oh, and then he'll there'll be an element of melancholy, which it kind of pervades <laughs> yeah. it now. But no, that's more sort of yeah in the moment. I think. Yeah, yeah, and because like you, if you could think right, this is what I want everyone to be thinking. So yeah, as you're feeling, you can literally just get tied up in knots. Completely, yes. Which is where I'm at at the moment. Oh yeah, me too. Um, so as as well as being incredibly sort of sad and poignant and everything, the book is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, which oh, obviously thanks. yeah, like some of the lines, huh. the line about um, having a poo while wearing your coat. Oh my god! We're so weird. You said that. That is, appears to be quite a popular. And weirdly, my editor sent me uh, an email at the weekend saying because um, they're looking at the paperback at the moment and they're trying to work out whether they should change the cover copy and stuff. And they just emailed me saying that line. So I, that's really funny that you yeah. thought that as well. That was, I mean, yeah, that was the line where I sort of, I you know, talking about kind of like how having these moments you work towards that are kind of as motivational things I had that line in my back pocket for so long and I was just like oh I can't wait to put that in somewhere yeah, so I'm glad you thought that one and the, yeah it, it absolutely cracked me up I was in public and it was like yeah it absolutely cracked me up but there's, <laughs> there are so many good one liners there's so many like good kind of like little like and I wondered um, yeah like I mean were they things that kind of were just like little one liners that would appear to you and you'd be like I'll just write that down and like and they're all were they things that like, came naturally in the writing of it well, I mean, my sort of guilty secret is I'm a complete sort of comedy nerd, is I suppose the uh, term you'd use, where I think, you know, some of my kind of earliest sort of memories have, were in car journeys where my dad in particular would be listening to sort of radio for kind of comedies. And it's something that my family is sort of a big part of our lives. Whenever I'm kind of back and we're all there, you know, in the evenings, we all inevitably end up watching, you know, whatever sort of sitcom is on or whatever so and I uh, you know since kind of school and university and you know 
subsequently I'm sort of you know even in my day job now I commission comedians as part yeah. of my what a dream job for you which is the absolute dream yeah. and so I'm completely I think one of the ways I kind of learn about kind of writing was to sort of subconsciously be kind of studying that kind of rhythm of jokes and kind of of stand-up and I think as as much as sort of you know other novelists are our inspirations people you know comedians like Daniel Kitson and Josie Long the are probably even more so because they sort of you know you know someone like Daniel Kitson for, for instance his sort of he has a mix sometimes he does straight stand-up shows and sometimes he does these sort of storytelling kind of shows and I've always you know probably possibly secretly a bit, I'm a sort of frustrated you know sitcom writer or yeah. maybe not stand-up because I don't think I could do the kind of performance side of it but I'm really utterly obsessed with comedy and comedians yeah, and sort of why joke it's just and I and I think it's that would be if you're sort of struggling to sort of you know if you're if you're writing something where you want to have that element of kind of you know comedy in it I think you can do a lot worse than you know watch a lot of stand-up because yeah. it just the way that they especially going to, you know, I was at the Edinburgh Festival and because all those shows were an hour long, again, you can sort of see whether, if there's a kind of through line and when they're, how they're sort of plotting it as they, as they go along. So I think I'm just sort of, because I've been so invested in that world since I was, you know, eight, you know, mm. I don't, I'm always remember my favourite thing would be if I happened to be kind of poorly and I was off school, I would just be listening to, you know, endless audio tapes of, you know, Victoria Wood and Dad's Army and all these things yeah, that probably nice. eight-year-old boys probably aren't kind of listening to. But just sort of, you know, I could, you know, there are scripts that I could, you know, recite off heart. And so I think having that sort of sense of, you know, the rhythm of of jokes and kind of punchlines means that I'm sort of lucky enough that that, that you know, if I'm writing something and my it will just appear in my brain. And, yeah. it's so, and so, yeah, occasionally it'll be, oh, I'm going to write that, you know, my phone is full of just sort of out of context confusing yeah. sort of little one-liners or you know I'm and and that's you know I really wanted this to be a funny book yeah because it's sort of it's it's kind of I found it quite challenging when I'm when I'm pitching it because it's sort of you know it goes to a lot of sort of dark areas and it's about loneliness and kind of grief but it, ultimately you know, I want it to be kind of uplifting and funny and I think you know as that's always what I've wanted to write and as my kind of you know I have people kind of I'm lucky that people sort of send me tweets and stuff, you know, who've read the book and I, I like it when someone sort of says, oh, you know, maybe you kind of feel really emotional and, you know, but I secretly much prefer it when someone says, of quotes a funny line or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just like, yes, I made someone laugh. Well, there are, there, are, there are so many. There are so <laughs> many. And, and the fact that it's such a natural part of your brain, I think it shows in, in the timing of it. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I, I like someone who writes like funny stuff, or yeah. I hope hopefully okay, funny yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, I was like, oh, I like that. And like just, it, uh, you can see how, like the sort of sitcom idea. Yes. Like, which, speaking of... Go on. Yeah, you, so you have... Do you like that? that was yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have... So you've, you've sold the TV rights. Yes. Which is very exciting. Yes. And so will you potentially be involved in writing the script? I think if it if it kind of gets that far... I don't think I will be purely because I think that sort of... I think screenwriting is um, such a different skill. Mm. And I think that as much as I would sort of love to sort of say, oh, you know, the idea of it coming up on kind of the credits and, you know, script written by Rich Rope will be the dream. I sort of think that that's probably a separate skill and something that I would need to kind of really apply myself to and learn. And I, I think that, you know, the kind of the people that I know are sort of, you know, reading it, at the reading the book at the moment with a view to, you know, coming on board as potential script writers are, you know, people that I massively admire and sort of, you know, comedy writers as well and they who have written, you know, 
sitcoms. So I sort right. of think they are the people. And yeah, the production company is headed up by um, Peter Fincham, who was the guy who was the executive producer on Alan Partridge in The Office and stuff like that. I know. So <laughs> I was so, ju- cool. so I was just sort of immediately when I heard that I was just like, well, yes, absolutely, of course, because you know having that sort of sense of and you know the person who'd, who'd read it, you know, and the, who wanted to kind of uh, sort of what the word is by the by the option was had that kind of comedy background as well. So I'm incredibly trusting of them yeah. to sort of do the do the right thing with it if it gets that far. So um, when it gets that far, I know, I know. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> Visualize we'll it. Well, I would definitely watch it. Um, oh. But like that kind of that um, you know that humour mm. allows you to address really sad things. Mm. And I wonder, like, you know, obviously, you know, the world is burning. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and there's obviously this kind of trend for uplift, mm. and, you know, and like these people writing these life affirming things that make you remember what's, what's important. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of people want to write that kind of stuff. What advice do you have for people that are trying to write something that is life affirming? Well, that's a very good question. I think. Yeah, I, someone asked me the other day whether I deliberately set, to, set out to write a life affirming novel and I don't know whether I sort of had that deliberate thought in my mind but I sort of realized that all the my favorite kind of books or tv shows tend to have go to sort of some possibly some dark places or some serious places but ultimately sort of show ways out of that and I kind of think that I mean I think my my example of always this is The Office, which seems like so outdated now. No, <laughs> but as a kind of timeless. I think it's so perfect as a sort of because you know in the first sort of few episodes where you're watching that, it seems like the most sort of cynical kind of you know show, and it's this sort of like cripplingly realistic exploration of you know the mundanity of office life and just these you know Brent as this sort of the the boss from hell and all of this. But by the time you get to that end of that Christmas special where he has had you know, that moment of, you know, he's told Chris Finch to fuck off and mm. he is the woman who kind of, he brings his date to the party. They just have a moment where he's completely honest with her and he's himself and they sort of, you know, they just sort of have a nice little bonding moment. And then obviously, you know, Dawn comes back for Tim and that mm. sort of romance. So oh, it's just the best. Yeah. And, and, I, and that is sort of always my benchmark for, you know, a show which could be seen as, you know, initially is quite kind of cold hearted and cynical. Ultimately, it's quite sort of soppy and sentimental by the end and I think that it would almost be it almost feels like you're cheating the reader I think if you're going to write about something where which um you sort of involve serious issues or you go down quite a bleak sort of route but ultimately it's still as you're writing it there are funny moments or moments of you know kind of kind of connection or I think to end it in a kind of way which is not you know, showing out ways out of kind of loneliness or something is a little bit, I just don't think I would enjoy that as a reading mm. experience. I think there are obviously, you know, books that set out to be a completely sort of, you know, deliberately bleak reflection of, you know, our times. Like, well, I can never remember, what is that Channel 4 thing at the moment? Is it years and years? That it's, that's, that's an iPlayer. I bet. Yeah, but I've just started, I've just started watching it. I don't watch it yet, but it sounds <laughs> sort of like, I mean, I think, I don't know, but I don't know whether there's a happy ending at the end of it, but I sort of feel like it's probably not. But that's obviously, that's something that's doing a deliberately sort of look at the way we're going. We need, you know, it's a warning. Whereas yeah. I think if you're setting out to write something where you sort of think, you know, I want this to, you know, deal with some, you know, difficult themes, but I, I just think it's finding, it's starting with the point of, you know, your character, you know, your protagonist or whatever, at, at, in the thick of the kind of hell that they're going through. And then by the end of it, just thinking what is the journey for when 
in that kind of final scene or final moment, you know, have they found a way out of it? And is does it feel kind of believable? And it doesn't necessarily have to be everything tied up neatly in a kind of big, perfect, kind of happy end, you know, going off into the sunset. But have they, does it at least feel like they are now kind of, they've found a way out of the kind of sticky situation yeah. that they've, they found themselves in? Yeah, without it being, without it sort of being too twee, without it kind of like, like you say, without the without sort of accepting the fact that life can sometimes be really yes, shit. Yes, exactly, yeah. And so, but how do you how do you deal with that? You deal with that through connection to people and by yeah. being honest and by being yourself and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it doesn't have to be the sort of, a huge shift from, you know, someone is in a situation who then sort of is completely the other side of it, and you know, you know, teacher becomes student becomes teacher or anything like that. But I think it's sort of if if it's just even if it's a subtle shift and it's a kind of positive, you know, they might not have everything figured out, but they're on that path. Then I think that's you know that still leaves the reader kind of feeling kind of hopeful and that kind of uplifting experience. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask one more question because right. I just realised that we're um, we're been babbling for ages oh great <laughs> um, but so i can't not ask you about getting your deal mm. because when i was reading about your deal i was like motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> like, but then hearing that you've written a couple of books and what you've gone through you know yeah i feel like but, i've at least got that to be yeah, kind of <laughs> like, and you deserve it like it's, it's wonderful it's Thanks. absolutely wonderful you know like i read um that when you um when you submitted it in june last year it attracted some of the highest and fastest international preempts that people had ever seen. Yes, I mean, if that's a press release, then there's probably it was in the Evening Standard. In the Evening Standard, yeah. yes. I mean, well, that was quite a funny review anyway because it was quite a sort of like it seemed to be quite furious that I'd even written the book in the first place. But I think it, there's an element of um, prob- not massaging of it, but I mean, it was. I'm really glad I went through those those sort of experiences of it, of it being. The, awful and sort of you know not mm. kind of getting anything and it just being you know there was one publisher who with that very first book I'd written who was like oh you just need to change a few things and then we'll take it to our acquisitions meeting so I even had the hope of oh it's gonna get and then it just didn't even get that far so kind of crushing so I you know th- that week where it was a, an insane week because it went out on it got submitted on Thursday eve a Thursday evening I think to publishers all you know to UK and then Europe and America as well and the next morning so I think I completely had I would daydream for hours and hours about that moment where you get the call from yeah. you, you say so the first thing I had was an email saying from my agent saying good news I think she might have even said good news mate which is looking back is really funny good news mate we've turned down a German offer and I was so just I remember standing up in my chair and sitting down, back down just in my in the office and someone was like you're right and I was like yes I think so no maybe and it was just this sort of and then the the next thing that happened was I was having lunch I still hadn't quite understood what was going on and it was like how I'd dreamt it where my phone was on the table I was in a Oaxaca it was very glamorous excellent and margarita in hand margarita in hand but my but my phone started vibrating on the table and it was my agent's name on there and my friends we just looked at each other and then I picked up the phone and then sort of they told me that they you know these sort of offers were coming in and it was that knowledge that I was going to yeah become a published author was genuinely I sort of I I don't think I sort of I prepared myself for the fact it was going to happen because I would so manage to kind of you know lower all my expectations and my agent was very good at managing that so that when it did happen it was so sort of um inexplicable 
that it took me ages to process it. And it was, you know, I think whenever I'm having a bit of a kind of grumpy moment of, you know, oh, it's, you know, no, I'm not having a good writing day or whatever, I try and remember kind of that experience was kind of worth it alone because yeah. it was, you know, you you try really hard at something and then it pays off in a way which you couldn't even conceive of. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a fun week. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so happy for you. Thanks. Like, and, and it's so well-deserved. The book is wonderful. Oh, thanks so, so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on the Red Podcast. Cheers, thanks for having me. Kids, just a quick message from me. Good news for those of you looking to really focus on your writing in 2020. Until December the 24th, I'm offering 15% discounts off all Riffraff services. So that includes the mentoring scheme and the manuscript shakedown, both of which offer you the chance to work directly with me or with a contemporary author within your genre. So tell Santa what you want this year or your parents or whoever and head over to the-riffraff.com for more details and to check out our list of over 30 author mentors. Or you can just drop me an email directly at oi at the-riffraff.com. Let's get to work. <laughs>